the word of our Lord from the book of Exodus. The king of Egypt spoke to the Hebrew midwives, of whom the name of one was Shifra, and the name of the other was Puah. And he said, When you do the duties of a midwife for the Hebrew women, and see them on their birth stools, if it is a son, then you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, then she shall live. But the midwives feared God, and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded, but saved the male children alive. So the king of Egypt called for the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this thing and saved the male children alive? And the midwife said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are lively and give birth before the midwives come to them. Therefore God dealt with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very mighty. And so it was, because the midwives feared God, that he provided households for them. So Pharaoh commanded all of his people, saying, Every son who is born you shall cast into the river, and every daughter you shall save alive. And a man of the house of Levi went and took his wife, a daughter of Levi. And so the woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was a beautiful child, she hid him three months. But when she could no longer hide him, she took an ark of bulrushes for him, daubed it with asphalt and pitch, put the child in it, and laid it in the reeds by the river's bank. And his sister stood afar off to know what would be done to him. Then the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river, and her maidens walked along the riverside. And when she saw the ark among the reeds, she sent her maid to get it. And when she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby wept. So she had compassion on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call a nurse for you from the Hebrew women, that she may nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the maiden went and called the, mother's ch- the child's mother. Then Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. And the child grew, and she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. So she called his name Moses, saying, Because I drew him out of the water. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would bless the reading of your word. We pray that you would bless it to our hearts, to our lives, and to our very selves. And we pray that you would help us to follow you as you call us. We pray all this in your son's name. Amen. Doing the right thing is often hard. We've all felt the, uh, the pressure of our peers who declare to us what we ought to do, what we should do, what we must do, what we're not cool if we don't do. And perhaps the hardest time to stand up to peer pressure is, is when we're standing up for something that is right. It's very hard to stand up for what's right sometimes. We've all known what it is to be that kid in the neighborhood or in school or 
at the park who is being pushed just to get along and to go along. And as we grow up and become adults, we don't get past that sort of peer pressure. We don't get past that sense of difficulty that we sometimes face when we're called to do the right thing when so many others are unwilling to do so. We can hear the voices of mediocrity and the voices of the status quo. You can almost hear them now crying out, You're a fool. What you're doing is pointless. Or don't cause a fuss. It's not worth it. Just fall in line. Good grief. Just hang it up, man. Don't you realize what a trouble you're causing me and everyone else? Doing the right thing is often hard. The redemption of God's people rested on the shoulders of a few forgotten ladies. Very quickly in the story of Exodus, we are faced with this man, Moses. We're first faced with him when he's just a newborn baby. But if we back up our train of thought just a bit to the first few verses of chapter 1, we have a better idea of what's happening. Joseph, you remember, had been sold into slavery and he's living down in in Egypt. And it is because of God's providence uh, through Joseph that that, that Joseph's family and God's people are protected from famine. And so... Joseph eventually moves all of his family down into Egypt, and they're doing quite well. They're, they're fitting in very comfortably. They've got some nice land. They've got plenty of, uh, of status. But a time comes where the scriptures tell us that that Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, that had, been, had befriended Joseph, dies, and suddenly you have one who did not hold that same alliance with Joseph. And so things start to get a little bit tough. And as the Hebrew people begin to, uh, to multiply, as families are growing and as generations are moving along, suddenly you've got a whole lot of Hebrew people down in Egypt. And the Pharaoh becomes very paranoid. And so what he does is he, he turns them into his slaves. And he has them work very hard. And when they're working hard, hard is not enough. They must work even harder. And when they're working even harder, even harder is not enough. They must work even harder. Longer days, more hours, fewer breaks. And the point comes where this work doesn't seem to be slowing down the the growing rate of the Hebrew people. And so they continue to multiply. And and Pharaoh continues to wring his hands wondering, what am I going to do with these people? They're not us. They're not like us. They're different from us. And here they are. They're they're catching up with us by numbers. And whatever we do to, to, uh, to cause them trouble, whether it is physical abuse or whether it's, uh, it's, it's more an intense labor, they keep growing. And that's where we pick up the story this morning. So the king calls a couple of the Hebrew midwives and says, we want you to kill all of the boy children when they're born.
Salvation history rests on these two women and their faithfulness. Their willingness to do the right thing, though it is a very hard thing. There are several ladies that are spoken of in this story. We only know three, perhaps four of them by name. Where two of the names, if if I were to ask you this morning, what were the names of the two Hebrew midwives from from Exodus one, you probably wouldn't have any clue. Sometimes I have a difficulty pronouncing it. I gotta think back through how the uh, how the, the the syllables go together. Shifra and Pua. A couple of forgotten names, but names. We elsewhere learn that Moses. Moses' mom is Jochebed, another name that we often forget. We're more familiar with his sister's name, and perhaps that's the sister that's being spoken of here, Miriam. But we learn her name elsewhere. Here in this story, we're given just two names, the names of the two midwives. But there were others who remained unnamed. Other ladies, forgotten ladies upon whose shoulders the redemption of God's people rested there was Pharaoh's daughter think of the audacity she had the scriptures don't give us a very uh, a very profoundly theological reasoning for her to do the right thing she sees the boy and sees that he's beautiful and says I think I'll save him. But there's Pharaoh's daughter. And there are all of the maidens of Pharaoh's daughter. One in particular who goes down to fetch that little ark, that little box, out from among the reeds. And then there are the other Hebrew women. Scores of unnamed mothers giving birth. Moses will grow up to become the greatest figure of the Old Testament. The greatest of God's leaders before Christ. And his life and his well-being rested on the shoulders of a few forgotten ladies. What was it that drove these two midwives and all of the other ladies in the story to do the right thing? The text tells us a couple of times that they were driven by the fear of the Lord or driven by the fear of God. And we often hear that phrase, fear of God or fear of the Lord. And of course, we think of of our common understanding of fear, fright and terror, something to be scared of. But the fear of the Lord is a very common theme in the Old Testament, specifically in the book of Proverbs. But all throughout the Old Testament, you have folks spoken of as being those who feared the Lord or feared God. And when we hear that phrase, fear of the Lord, or fear of God, we're not talking biblically about terror. We're not talking about fright. 
What we're talking about is a certain way of perceiving ourselves in relationship to God. The fear of the Lord is really kind of a a worldview concept. It's big, it's broad, and it involves three underlying affirmations. The fear of the Lord or the fear of God rests upon three affirmations. First, I was created. In other words, my life is a gift to me. I have not created myself. I am not a self-made man. I was created to be a... This speaks to what we understand about personality. Persons always come in groups. Babies always come from mommies and daddies. I was created. My life does not find its source in myself. My existence does not find its source in myself. My identity as a person is rooted elsewhere. My existence as a person has been given to me as a gift from the Creator. But not only was I created, but I am expected. There are certain expectations of me. This life that I've received as a gift has expectations for how it's supposed to be lived. And so this speaks not just to human personality, but it speaks to human responsibility. There are certain things for which I am responsible. There are certain things that I ought to do, whether I I dislike that idea of oughtness or not. There are certain things I should do and must do. The one who created me has a standard that he expects me to live according to. And one day, I will be judged. This speaks to human accountability. One day, I will stand before the one who made me, and I'll give an account for how I lived. I'll give an account for what I did with the life that I was given, for whether or not I lived up to those expectations. That were placed before me. The fear of the Lord ought to be motivation in our lives to do the right thing, to live well, to do right by others, to hold up our ends of responsibilities. These three underlying affirmations concerning our lives ought to shape the way that we live as people who've been made in God's image and as people who see all around us opportunities to do the right thing, though they are so often so hard to do.
you have in this story in the lives of these few forgotten ladies. Lives that are being lived redemptively. Lives that are being lived to be a part of doing the right thing. And not just doing the right thing for the sake of the right thing, although there's good in that, but doing the right thing for the sake of others. When we think of redemptive living, we ought to ask the question, well, what are the characteristics of redemptive living? How do I know whether or not I'm living redemptively? And really, I want to offer to you a couple of characteristics of redemptive living. Redemptive living is about living for the sake of others. And not just for the sake of others kind of in general, but specifically living for the sake of an other. Now, there may be many others, but when we talk about living for the sake of others, we're not talking about just living for the sake of humanity in general. We're talking about living for the sake of the one before us. Loving our neighbor as ourselves. And you remember, I I, I quote John Wesley all the time when I talk about loving your neighbor as yourself. He said, who's my neighbor? My neighbor's two people. He's the person before me and the next person I meet. In other words, that person. So when we talk about loving our neighbors, we're not just talking about loving all the people in all the world. Yes, that is good, and that's, that is ultimately what we ought to be doing. But if we're not loving the person before us, then we can't be loving our neighbor as ourselves. And if we're not living for the sake of that other person, then really we aren't living lives for the sake of others. Redemptive living is characterized also by living with genuine self-abandon. And I I use that adjective genuine because I want you to understand what I mean here by self-abandon. I'm not talking about living recklessly. I'm not talking about living life on the edge. I'm talking about living with an, an abandonment to self. Living not for the sake of me and myself and my interests and my own, but instead living with palms wide open, with nothing grasped in life. You see in these ladies, these these few forgotten ladies, upon whose shoulders the redemption of God's people rested. You see in them this type of redemptive living. You see them living for the sake of not just all of the babies, but this baby. Not just for all of the world, but this this little corner of the world in which they've been placed. You see them living for the sake of others, specific others, others that have been placed in their lives and in their care. And they do that because they are abandoned to self. They're not living for themselves. They're not living with with their hands grasped tightly around their own lives and their own rights and their own fears and their own concerns and their own what ifs and if I get caught then what? They're living with genuine 
self-abandon. And many of them, in doing so, end up going down in the, in the stories of history with complete anonymity. We don't know their names. We don't know who they were. But we do know that they did the right thing. They did the right thing even though it was hard. We see their genuine self-abandonment and their almost seeming insignificance to history. You know, I, I love in those Old Testament stories when you come across these obscure details and these, these little, little things that if you stop and you think about them, you start to realize, man, there was a whole lot riding on a whole lot of little bitty things working out just right. Kind of like when Joseph was stealing away from Potiphar's wife and she grabbed his cloak and it ripped off of him. The question is, what poor tailor made that cloak? I mean, really? But this is how God works. God works through situations that often seem very insignificant. And He works through people who often seem very insignificant. Living for the sake of others. Living with genuine self-abandon. If you think about it, is radically countercultural. Because this is not the popular way to live. The world tells us that we ought to live in such a way that we forget about others. They're not us. They're not ours. They're not our responsibility. That we ought to live for ourselves. That we ought to live for, for numero uno. The number one. Me, myself, and I. That we're the center of our own universe. That whatever makes us happy, it can't be that bad. And we ought to pursue it. That living with a sense of responsibility for our neighbor. Living with a sense of responsibility for those that God has placed in our lives is foolish. After all, who's living responsibly for you? But living this way is living in a way that affords us the opportunity to be a redemptive presence in the lives of others. To be a redemptive presence in our community and to be a redemptive presence in the lives of those who are hurting and are broken. Not just those who are hurting and broken, but those who are just in need and dependent. In parenting, we quickly, we quickly, very quickly, face how really selfish we are, down deep. 
I don't know about you, but there are times when I get mad when the kids want the food that I'm eating. That happened just this week. Multiple times this week. Some of you are laughing because you know you've been there and you're thinking, I've fed you. You ate before I did. You ought to be in bed. Leave me and my food alone. But when we're invited into the lives of others, we are invited into the opportunity to not grasp for what is ours, but to live for others. And it is only in that failure to grasp and in that willingness to give of ourselves that God is able to do marvelous things and He's able to redeem that which is lost and broken. We ought to see that sort of love in our parents. Today being Mother's Day, many of us are reminded of how our moms have given of themselves for us. How they've sacrificed. How they have very literally made room in their lives and in their bodies for us. So that we could have life. And so that we could live life and enjoy it. But all around us, we find situations that are hard. And we find right things that need to be done that are hard. And we find people and situations and communities and families in need of redemption. And redemption is always hard I want to end with a a very kind of sobering realization and that is redemption is always costly when the scriptures speak of redemption normally they're talking about blood matters Normally they're talking about death. Something or someone dying. Because redemption is always costly. It is never cheap. Salvation never comes cheap. It is always costly. But the amazing thing about the story of Scripture is that redemption is always personal. God does not stand by untouched. He does not stand by in decree from heaven that redemption will be so. He always personally invests himself. He always personally steps out, bears his own neck. And he uses persons. Persons being raised up like Moses here. Not even aware of what will become of his life. But notice this person Moses is surrounded by other persons who are willing to sacrifice themselves for his sake. And for the sake of the other baby boys. Redemption is always personal. It is never 
through mere decree. Redemption will not happen in our families, in our communities. It will not happen in our nation, in our world, unless there are people who are willing to be raised up to do costly things. And I'll warn you, redemption is always dangerous. There is no promise of safety in scriptures. Whoever told you right in the middle of God's will is the safest place you can be, lied to you. They may not have lied to you. I'll take that back. Please forgive me. But they were grossly mistaken. If by safe you mean in the end God will watch over and in the end God will work all things for good, yes. But if by safety you mean harm will not come, you are grossly mistaken. In the center of God's will for His people is the cross of Jesus. And that was no safe place. In the center of God's will for those around us who are hurting and those around us who are in need and those around us who are simply dependent and need to see love from others. In the center of God's will for that, there is also a cross. A cross that we are called to bear. A cross that we are called to take upon ourselves and to follow in the footsteps of Jesus. Because the archetype of redemptive living is the triune God. The God who eternally gives of Himself for the sake of others. The God who gives of Himself so that others might live. So that others might have life. So that others might enjoy peace and hope. We redeem according to God's way of redeeming. And His way is costly. His way is personal. His way is dangerous. His way is to invite us to do the right thing and to live redemptively for the sake of others, specifically those entrusted to our care. Let's pray.